Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 534 for April 18th, 2018. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is again, Bart Bouchatz. Again, we are going to call this a light episode and uh, not a programming by stealth. Welcome back to the show. Back to back, Bart. Yay. Actually, this this really does meet the definition of light because this is highly untechnical. Okay, good, good. But but we care about it from a technical perspective, right? Well, we yeah, it, 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 technology is involved, but it, it's re, we're not in the weeds at all. We're, we're very much the opposite of in the weeds. We're looking at the very, very big picture stuff really here today. So this is all about the GDPR, which are four letters every European IT professional is now sweating about, most probably. And any person working for a large corporation that processes data from Europeans should have been sweating about this for the last year. But I have a feeling there may be some very complacent people who are about to get a rude shock. <laughs> well, I've been wanting to know about this for a while, and uh, I asked Bart to uh, to come on the show and talk about it. He had said GDPR a couple of times, and I kept asking him to repeat what it stands for, the General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, but uh, we thought a deep dive into it and what it means and uh, what we can expect to happen would be would be pretty cool. Yeah, and this this is going to have global effects. We've already seen it having effects because of how often I've used those four letters in security in security bits. So that kind of proves how big of an effect this is having. And it hasn't gone into force yet. It doesn't go into force until a month and a few days from now. So if we've already been talking about it for weeks and it hasn't even gone into force yet, clearly it's important. Right. So right. being an Osilla Castaway spin-off show, <laughs> I thought we would start with the problem to be solved. Yay! So I guess, you know, this is a European regulation. So the, the OR at the end of GDPR is a European regulation. So it is within the European Union that this law was written, and it is within the European Union that this law is the law, but it has wider tentacles than you might expect, and we'll get into that as we go through it. So the problem to be solved. So the EU is not the United States of Europe. So that means that what you have is lots of countries which work very closely together, but they're still independent countries. And one of the ways that has manifested itself up until next month is that every nation in the EU has data protection laws. They're all extremely similar to each other for reasons we'll get to in a minute. And yet they're all different. <laughs> and if you are Microsoft or Google, or to be honest, any multinational company, having teeny tiny Luxembourg have its own set of rules that are subtly but not that different to the Netherlands, to Belgium, to France, to Italy, to Germany, to Ireland, to the UK, to Spain, to Portugal, to Greece. It's not conducive. I mean, you've driven through Europe. It's lots of very small countries. <laughs> yeah, shockingly small, surprisingly small. Surprisingly, one they're very, very, very full of people. So in terms of population, we really punch above our weight. Um, but nonetheless, it's, yeah. So having a different law in every country is a problem. Now, they're different in every country, but regardless of that fact, most of them predate the modern internet as we know it. Most of the uh, data so protection they, laws, you mean? Yeah, so they, they predate the concept of what I will call the Facebook-style business model. Ah. Uh, and the okay. prevalence of identity theft as being a real thing and not a hypothetical problem. So these laws could be 20, 30 years old. So there were computers. 
and yet not quite the way we have it today. Okay. Um, and the other thing is that there's no, because it's not a single law across the whole of Europe, there's no such thing as standard rights for EU citizens when it comes to this stuff, because every country does it a little bit differently to each other. So what are your rights? Well, where are you now? Where's the company you're working with? Yeesh. You know, it all gets a bit... Yeah. Is it also different thing, by where that company is located? Right. Exactly. Not only where you get you're located, but to, where they're located? Well, then you get into an argument with the jurisdiction, right? Right, right. Whereas if it was just the same across the whole of Europe, that argument would be so much easier to resolve. I mean, you say, okay, there's still issues when you go outside of the European Union, but to get these, you know, all of these little countries to be the same would be progress. And then the final thing is that although we have very strong data protection laws as a rule across Europe, the penalties for breaking them are not nearly as heavy as they should be, and they're also not as uniform as they could be. So if you're a smart corporation, you may just very carefully pick and choose where you pop your corporate headquarters and in the hope that that way you get away with lesser penalties. So you said not as heavy as they should be. That That is a personal opinion, not necessarily a fact, right? I bet the, the corporation It is the opinion of the lawmakers who drafted the GDPR okay. and an opinion I share. Okay, there you go. Perfect. Yes. Uh, so let's start with a big picture overview. So as we already said, GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation. And the GDPR covers all personal data. So notice that there is a caveat. It's not all data. It's all personal data. And we'll get into the definition in a while because the definition is very important. So all personal data processed by manual or automated means. Okay. So not all data, just all personal data. And it's manual or automated. So if you have it in a filing cabinet, it's still data. You still have to protect it. If you have it in a computer, it's still data. You still have to protect it. So if it's my home phone number on a paper library card in, at the library? Same thing applies as if it was in a file yeah, okay. or in a database somewhere. Okay. So they don't care whether you keep it on paper or as bits. If you're keeping it, then you have responsibilities. Okay, good. Which is sensible, right? So there's three objectives. So the law, when they were, when this law was drafted, which took years, right? You have 28, I think, member states having to agree on stuff. This took years to build. But they had three goals when they were writing the law. So goal one, give individuals more advanced and more clearly defined rights, more control over how their personal data was stored and used. Sorry, and more control over how their personal data was stored and used. So from the point of view of, a, of an individual, more rights, more clearly defined, and more control over your data, which is not too bad. The second aim was to empower individuals to seek compensation from organizers who breached their data protection rights. So oh. under current law, in many countries, the data protection commissioner can go after companies, but Joe Soap on the street can't. Well, GDPR says, well, if a company harms you, then you have the right to sue that company. So, And in, they may also have statutory fines. So in the case of, uh, I had this happen in the United States when the government just didn't manage to keep track of all the tops, the uh, information from the uh, Office OGP. of Personnel Management. OPG, uh, OGP? Uh, OPM. Government Personnel. OPM, OPM. Office of Personnel Management, that was yeah, it. Yeah, when they lost that, or or actually Equifax would be another good example yeah. of it, right? They did, the, the government didn't go after them, and as individuals, we can't go after them. 
But had that yeah, existed exactly. with uh, had GDPR been here and applied, that's the kind of thing they're looking for, where you could personally sue. Yeah, so basically, the government still have the right to impose statutory fines, but every individual affected has the right to seek redress as well. By the way, Which for the audience, that... I want I want them to know. Normally, I would be asking like five hundred more questions by now, but I know this is a complex uh, issue, and you've tried to put this in a certain order. So a lot of my I questions have. that you're used to me saying, you would be going, but Allison, ask him this. I am holding my tongue more than you can imagine because I, I know you've got this in order. And, and at the end, hopefully I'll remember any questions you may not have answered. I was going to say, when I'm finished with the overview and the section after the overview, at that point, it's fair. It's open season. Fair game. Okay. All right. Good to know. <laughs> so second principle, individuals can sue. And then the third principle is to make organizations more accountable and instill a culture of privacy awareness. Oh, that's kind of squishy. It's kind of squishy, but a pretty good deal. And the main way to make them privacy aware is to frighten the bejeebus out of them with gigantic, <laughs> big statutory fines. Okay. That is how this is working, right? Okay. Um, I'll, I'll jump a little bit ahead, but if you really mess up, so if you, if you don't do what you're, if you don't meet your responsibilities and you fail to do a mandatory disclosure, then you can have 4% of your organization's global annual turnover or $20 million, whichever is greater, plus 2% for failing your mandatory reporting requirements, plus all the individual lawsuits wow. leveraged against you. Now, now if that doesn't focus the old <laughs> mind... Well, uh, you used a word I didn't know... Um... You said 4% of the organization's turnover. What is turnover? I think turnover is the European way of saying revenue. Not, so it's not, not profit. profit. It's revenue? Oh, jeez. Yeah. So it's even harder. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it, it, yeah. So if you're a company that has billions of dollars coming in and billions of dollars going out, then it's the billions of dollars that you're going to get the uh, fine on. It's <laughs> Right. Now, these are maximum limits, right? So if you make a very, very small little boo-boo, you're not going to lose 24% of your company's global turnover. But again, these things focus minds, and that's the idea. So there are the three objectives, which you could argue that's another way of saying the problems to be solved from the point of view of the people who wrote the law. So that's what they're hoping to do. And they built a law around what they call the seven core principles. So collected personal data should be for a specific and legitimate purpose. So if you collect the data for one reason, you can't just use it for anything you feel like. If you're collecting data to do a mailing list, you can't then decide on a whim, oh, let's sell that to some advertisers. That's not what you collected it for. You're not allowed to use it for that unless you go out and get fresh permissions and so forth. Would that apply to so, something like uh, I asked to have access to the camera because I told you I was a barcode reader, but I'm actually taking pictures all the time? Uh, well, like your camera doesn't isn't doesn't store data. It's your device, so you are in control of that. So, but that sort of vague idea. But it could be putting it to, online, right? But you're in control of that app. Hmm. So that's you. So it's you managing your data. Yeah, so but if, the if they thing. say that if they say they're using it to take a picture of the barcode, send it, put it up online, and oh, compare a cloud it, service of some sort. Yeah, oh, and okay. compare it to yes. a database, which is exactly what they do. That information is not on my on my device. Yeah, then they would have to. They couldn't just add extra things to do with it on a whim. They would have to have agreed with you up front or come back to you at a later date and went, "We're rolling out this new functionality. Are you happy with that?" 
Okay. Or or how about they, they collect data about you and they tell you it's for uh, research purposes? Oh, sorry. Yeah, you see, Cambridge Analytica are so far afoul of GDPR, you can't even begin to imagine. But, well, but it's actually great timing because you can imagine now. Yeah. You can see exactly it's... why this needs to exist. Correct. Poster yeah. child. So, specific and legitimate purpose is the first principle. Legitimate. The second principle... That's legitimate. Well, legitimate is going to get lots more definition as we go. Legitimate okay, gets very padded out. Okay, good. Uh, collected personal data should be adequate to meet the needs, but minimized. Hmm. So basically, collect the data you need and only the data you need. So don't just hoover everything up in the hope that it might become useful someday. Remember, you're collecting it for a specific legitimate purpose, so you should only collect what you actually need. Now, at one time, uh, Android, and I think they changed this a while ago, If you, when you installed an app, it would say, you have to agree to all these different things I might want to do later. And uh, instead of just saying, when you go to take a picture of something, oh, I need access to the camera, may I have that, please? It would, ask, it would basically force yeah. you to say yes to all of them. It would seem this might apply there. Yeah, that, I, that kind of thing is, is highly frowned upon, as we'll see later in the section on consent. Okay. I think they did change that, by the way. They did. Oh, yeah. So they copied Apple's model, which is much, much, much better. Ask for permission at the point you're using it, because that way the user is much more in understanding of what the hell is going on. Yeah. And you know why? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. So second principle, adequate and minimized. Third principle, stored personal data should be should be accurate and kept up to date. Hmm. So you cannot if you store my credit rating you now have a responsibility to make sure that the credit rating you have stored is accurate. You don't get to store a wrong credit rating about me. How do you, If you're oh, going wow. to store it, you have to keep it accurate. That's going to be a hard one. Yep. Uh, personal data should be kept for no longer than necessary. So this, again, is the same idea, right? Adequate, minimized, don't keep it any longer. When you're done with it, if you collected it for a specific purpose to run some sort of competition. Well, the competition's over. You've picked the winners. The prizes have been handed out. Delete. Flush. I, I want to back up to that accurate up-to-date, man. I, I like. Let's say I give you my name. That's part of my personally mm-hmm. identifiable information. Now I get married. Does that mean mm-hmm. that, that you as a company have to watch the, the records no. of name changes? No, but when you, as the newly married Allison, says, by the way, my name's changed now, the company has to update it. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. There. Okay, good, yeah. good. Um, no longer than necessary. Principle five. Personal data should be stored securely. Perish the thought. <laughs> yeah, that should be number one. Uh, okay. Well, no, right? It, it's kind of logical. So we take if you're going to take it, you've got to know why you're taking it. You've got to only take what you need. You've got to keep it accurate. Don't keep it for any longer than you have to. Keep it safely. Principle six. Organizations or people that hold personal data must be accountable for what happens with that data. This is called the accountability principle. If you take on the, if you take it upon yourself to store personal data, or your organization does, you have just become accountable for what you're storing. That doesn't seem unreasonable. Does that get fleshed out? What? Well, accountable. Oh yeah, is accountable back- basically means you can have, you can be fined and or sued. It's okay. basically what accountable means. Right. Organizations I mean, sort of for people. So I'm yes. the database so, manager for, you know, this photo no, database. No, it's more on if Google? you're a one-person company, right? You can be a person who does business. Okay. 
So not you're just a person within a corporation. It's not personal responsibility within a corporation. It's basically not everyone who does business is a corporation. There okay. are individual okay. business people, sole traders, as we call them here. Okay. And then the final principle, use of personal data must be lawful, fair, and transparent. And transparent gets plenty more flesh in those bones. Hmm. Okay. So there are the seven principles. So we have three objectives and seven principles. So the next thing to, I want to I want to draw a line under is the or in GDP or it is an EU regulation and those are actually very rare beasties because as a whole because Europe isn't the United States of Europe the general preference for how things get done in Europe is with something called a directive so the way a directive works is that at a European level they agree a list of goals to be achieved they write those up as a directive and then every government implements that directive in whatever way they think makes most sense for them. So you might have so a directive a that says vague. that it's, it's more vague and it's much more, it's not so much vague as in how you do it is your problem, but what we want you to do is to outlaw smoking under the age of 18 and then you may decide to write those laws. That's a very, very simplistic example. Um, maybe the directive might be that the age of consent should be regularized between straight and gay couples. Okay, well, for some countries, that means it's 16 for everyone. Uh, for some countries, what they did was they took, it used to be 16 and 18, so they went, C is all halfway, 17 for everyone. <laughs> but basically, the directive would be something like, this needs to be achieved, and then every country writes that into their own national statutes. Okay. So when you're in Ireland, it's Irish law. And when you're in Belgium, it's Belgian law. But they're all sort of harmonized because the directive was the same directive. So they're all trying to achieve the same end, but they all did it their own way. And that's how right. most things in Europe are done, EU directives. Okay. Because people don't like Europe taking away their sovereignty. But the GDPR is one of those rare beasties, a European Union regulation. It is direct EU law with no intermediary. Every oh. EU country is bound by this law directly. It applies directly everywhere within Europe. And that's a huge difference because previously everything that had been done on data protection was done as directives, which is why we have all the laws being a little bit different everywhere. And yet somewhat similar because they were all, there were many of them were based on directives plus whatever the countries wanted to do on their own bat. Well, now it's much more straightforward. All those are gone, replaced by Europe-wide GDPR. So there won't be separate laws. There will not be, be separate laws. Ireland's data different. protection laws, Ireland's data protection laws will vanish into the ether on the 25th of May to be replaced by the GDPR. Okay. Belgium's data protection laws will vanish into the ether to be replaced by the GDPR. So all across Europe, it just becomes, this is the law. Okay. Which is so much simpler. And as yeah, I've just I, hinted, I, I thought I, I, I'm glad you went through this in detail because I had the exact opposite understanding from when we talked about it a few times before. I came out with the wrong impression. Okay. Interesting. So this all goes into effect on the 25th of May, 2018, which is a month and a little bit away from now. And it goes into force in the entire European Union. And that very much includes the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Brexit be damned. You're in here now. This law applies to you now. Uh, in terms of what happens with Brexit, that is very, very up in the air because it's looking like the Europe, like the EU and the UK are going to agree a transitionary period. So the UK is going to abide by EU law until 2020. And then even after that, there's some talk that they might agree to voluntarily abide by the GDPR so that they can do business with European companies more easily. Oh, yeah. But well, why go right your own rules? Jeez. 
I mean, this is hard enough to get done once. Yep. As I've already mentioned, the penalties are big. So just your fines can be up to 4%. Then there's an extra there's an extra 2% on top of that if you fail to notify and, you, and you're under a requirement to notify. And then you can be sued by every individual who you've affected as well. So 4% plus 2% plus every individual you've affected. Ouch. Now, this is the bit where it really, really... This is the bit that gets everyone. GDPR applies to anyone in the EU processing personal data from anyone anywhere on planet Earth. So that's the first thing. So it reaches out. If you are in Europe and you are processing data, it doesn't matter where the personal data, it doesn't matter where the personal data came from. You have to treat it with the same respect, regardless of whether it's the personal data of a Chinese person, an American, a Belgian, an Irishman, whatever. Hmm. If you're in Europe, you have to abide by the GDPR when oh, it comes to everyone's personal data. Okay. And the main reason for this is because then you're not left trying to figure out everyone's nationality. The rules are very simple, right? You don't end up with a situation like you have at the FISA courts, where you can sort of say, well, I was under a reasonable expectation that this person wasn't an American, therefore I can spy on them. Right. Much more straightforward. Right. It's a person. It's personal data. Rule applies. So that's one way it reaches out. And then you have the mirror image. Anyone, anywhere in the world, processing the personal data of anyone physically in the European Union, not just the EU citizens, there's no citizenship requirement here. If you're in Europe, you are protected by GDPR, and so is your data. And it doesn't matter where in the world the person processing it is, if you're in Europe and they're processing your data, you have GDPR rights. So only while I'm standing at your house... When I go on vacation, yes. am I protected? As soon as I come back home, I'm not protected again? Right. But the main okay. reason it's written this way is so that you can move to Ireland or whatever on whatever kind of a visa. So basically, we're not, the reason it's not tied to citizenship is because then you're back to the same problem of proving Tracking citizenship. Is, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's just so difficult. It's much more straightforward to say if you're here, the rule applies. It seems to me you're, you're either going to be doing this right or you're not going to be doing it right. You're not going to go, ooh, Allison's in the U.S. I'm going to change her data and go mess with it. Exactly. And that's why you're seeing Facebook and all of these companies simply saying, yeah, all that GDPR stuff we're doing, we're just going to do that everywhere. It would be more work. it's just easier. Yeah. Unless you thought, okay, well, I'm going to lose 30% of my data, but I still have 70% I could screw with. I don't know. That's got to be that, math they're again, doing, right? Exactly, but it's quite difficult. And the other question I know our listeners are asking is, what about enforcement, right? If a company has no presence in Europe, then in reality, the fine is never going to get imposed. But the thing is, the multinationals who are moving stuff across the border, they all have European headquarters, many of them within spitting distance of where I'm physically sitting. Ireland is full of European headquarters, Facebook's included. Uh, in fact, Facebook's world headquarters are here in Ireland, um, and only the American headquarters are in America. So. In reality, the companies who this really matters for all have European operations, which means they are all under the jurisdiction of Europe. So, yes, this very much applies. So, hang on. Are, are you saying they have to have a physical presence in no, the country? No, I'm saying in order for it to be realistically enforceable, the law just says it applies to everyone. But if you are a Chinese company and you're abusing the data of some Europeans, and you have no presence in Europe, you have no bank accounts in Europe, you have no anything in Europe, yes, you can be found guilty. Now what? So 
well, we so send you the bill and you do nothing. What is the definition of presence? Um, well, there is okay. I'm not saying there is no definition of presence. What I'm saying is you're always guilty, but in reality, in terms of actually oh, okay. punishing the person, okay, they have to somehow come into Europe so that they can be well. Tackled you can stop them authority. from being allowed to do any business there. But exactly, that that's what I'm saying. But that isn't one of the penalties listed. Well, the penalties are fines and stuff. So as soon as you come into Europe to try to do business, then you're going to be nabbed because now you're in Europe. No, 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 no. I've, I've got uh, uh, Allison's widget company and I'm just secretly hoovering up everybody's data. Uh, but the servers are in the United States. My bank's in the United States, but I've got users in Europe. And then uh, I do some, you know, some malfeasance. You guys mm-hmm. put a penalty against me. I don't pay it. Mm-hmm. Can't, it didn't sound like one of the penalties was, and then you are no longer allowed to do business here until you pay these fines. I, that I might have a be. feeling there will be court cases and stuff at that stage because uh, governments have the right to sue as well. Uh, sorry, it's not only... like The financial fines are just the by-the-book fines. I think if you're trying to evade and stuff, I think you can be sued as well. I don't so think there could it's be only penalties the- for people who aren't physically present. Well, the penalty would be being fined, and then the enforcement of that penalty might involve all sorts of other legal court cases being taken and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so the point I was trying to make is that, in theory, the law applies everywhere, but if you if you do it in such a way that European authorities can't reach you, there's no extradition treaty with the country you're in, you may get away with it, but only as long as you don't do anything in Europe that they can they can then trap you on, is what I'm trying to say. Okay. So the letter of the law says that just applies everywhere. So you, but there may be people who are guilty who can't be prosecuted because they they stay away from Europe. Is, is all I'm saying. I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. I just wanted to because someone's going to say, but you can't possibly enforce this everywhere. And the answer is correct. Okay, that's what I was trying to but say. But there are ways to penalize. Okay, there are ways to penalize, and the the you know the the best will be done. But I guarantee you, there will be slime balls somewhere <laughs> who never leave Russia or something. Who who will breach this stuff? But on the whole, the the people that really matters—the Facebooks, the Googles, the Apples, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Adobe's—they all have European pre- presences. They are all entirely bound by this, which is why they're all taking action. Anyway, so that's that's the big picture introduction. So the next thing I think is really really important before we go any further is to nail down what words mean, because the GDPR <laughs> is full of what look like English words, but when they're written inside the GDPR. Their jargon. They have defined meanings. Hmm. And so we need to look at the defined meanings because every time it says personal data, it doesn't matter what you think is personal. <laughs> what matters is what the GDPR defines personal data as. Right, right. And so there's a whole bunch of these terms, and they're very simple English terms, but they have specific meanings within the GDPR. And so I want to break through those, and then you're free to ask me any question you like. Okay, all right. So the first and most obvious one is personal data. Okay, what does that mean? Any information that could identify a living person. GDPR does not apply to the dead. Oh. So census data from 100 years ago, no GDPR protections. But that it also means I- you could steal somebody's identity who's dead. It does. Other laws. <laughs> Oh, they're okay. like, yeah, I mean, if yeah. you don't try to do anything, then you're a dead person. It's like, well, I don't think we're going to sh- you're gonna let that dead person vote. I have a death cert. Um, but yeah, I know there are other issues as well, but it's not a GDPR problem. It may okay. be many, many other kinds of problems, but it's not a GDPR problem. And data that can't be tied to a human being who's alive 
is not personal data. Huh. So that means that this doesn't cover everything. This only covers things that Alison does, not things that can't be tied to Alison. Which hmm. is important because it limits the scope of the GDPR, but it also makes it possible to continue for the world to function. So GDPR needs to be limited. And it means that the protections are applied to what matters, stuff that can be tied to me. That's what can do me harm, stuff about me. And so personal data is stuff that can be tied to me. Okay. Now, this sounds like a really simple thing to say, but it's chock-a-block full of gray areas. And right now, there's still a lot of confusion because, to be honest, what we're missing is precedent. And there's going to be arguments had... The authorities are going to have to adjudicate these things, and then there's going to be precedent, and then there's going to be clarity, and then that question will be answered. So right now is, is the most I'll know confusing. it when I smell it. <laughs> to some extent. So right now, there is, a, there is the least amount of clarity there is ever going to be. From here on in, it only gets more clear, which is good. So there are some things we can say. So indirect identification is covered. So the, com- if the, the combination of multiple pieces inf- of information that individually wouldn't be covered could become covered if putting them all together becomes an, a, a definable identity. Okay. So a name on its own is not covered. If you have a list of names and signatures, say, well, signatures is probably a bad example, just some names and some text say, here's the P, here's some testimonials. And all you have is a name and some text that is not covered by GDPR because lots of people have the same name. That doesn't actually identify an individual. But if you have a name plus a date of birth, well, probably is covered. If you have a name, a date of birth and an address, well, no doubt there, that's definitely covered. Okay. So it's the so combination. We have, sure. Sure. It's combination. Again, easy to say, the details around the edges are going to need ironing out. Uh, Incomplete information could also be covered. So an example might be a customer ID. That doesn't look like personal data. 43215. It doesn't look like personal data. But if the same organization has a linker table or some mechanism for linking that random looking ID to actual personal information, well, then by proxy, it has just become personal information. So the classic case would be a staff ID in work. Well, your staff ID on its own wouldn't be, but of course your company knows which staff ID maps to which human being. So then the staff ID is personal data because it is linked to your identity. Okay. Makes sense. That's indirect. Right, right. Uh, Pseudo-anonymized data or pseudonymized, as it's called in the law, is also covered. So Hmm. if you generate a random-looking token... That is still covered by the GDPR if you hold the mapping from the random token to the real person. If you don't hold that mapping, then it's not pseudonymized, then it's actually anonymized, and then you're not covered. So, so if you can map it back... What was the, um, the algorithm that Apple talked about where they, they take bits of noise and sprinkle it in and all that? That would be a case of where they can't unscramble the egg and tell you who was who? Exactly. So if you can't, yeah, that's a good way to say it. If you, if you can unscramble the egg, it's covered. If you can't unscramble the egg, not covered. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a very nice analogy, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, scrambled eggs, not covered. You can use that at Sunny work. Sunny side up, covered. <laughs> Sunny side up, covered. Fold it back up into an egg. Gotcha. 
Um, and then just to say that the obvious stuff is covered, like stuff we've had for years, like national ID numbers, telephone numbers, email addresses, that's all covered. Everyone knew that would be covered. But because this is a new law, it also explicitly covers much more modern things like device IDs, i.e. MAC addresses and things oh, like that. And the equivalent wow. and fire. Yeah. MAC addresses? Yep. Your phone Why? has a unique MAC address that ties to you. And no, it doesn't. that can be mapped to you. No, yes. it doesn't. Everything with a wireless card has a unique No, I know ID that... I know it has a unique MAC address. I know that. But it's not necessarily mm-hmm. me. That's like saying my, my license plate number is tied to me. Steve can drive my car. Yeah, but it's close enough. That they're they've been very explicit about it that Mac device identifiers are covered. Yeah. That's a weird one. That's very yeah, odd. If you think about it, if you think about it, the kind of data that will be in logs tied to MAC addresses is staggering. If I have your MAC address, I can literally say every I can track you physically around our campus. True, true. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's one of those indirect things. It is one of those indirect things, yeah. Yeah. Online identifiers like IP addresses and tracking cookies are also explicitly covered. And very much to my happiness, location data is covered. So I'm going to ask the question again. IP addresses change all the time. They do, but they are almost always linkable to a MAC address and or to something else. So in practicality, they actually are extremely valuable at identifying people. And I know this from personal experience because we very often have to do that. (laughs) An IP address shows up in the log file misbehaving. Nine times out of ten, I can tell that to a human being. Right. And and the information you can collect often might have date stamps and you would know when that person had that IP address. Yeah, exactly. And then you tie that in with the location, with the MAC address mapping from the DHCP logs and you tie that in with the location data from the wireless access points. And all of a sudden, I've turned an IP address into this person was standing in this room at this time doing this naughty thing. Okay. So it's a very forward thinking law because it's, it's written now, not 20, 30 years ago. So that's the first definition, personal data. And everywhere you see personal data, that's what they mean. Data you can tie to a human being who is alive. Special category data. This is what in colloquial English you and I would call sensitive data. But in GDPR speak, it's called special category data. And special category data covers racial or ethnic origin, genetic data, biometric data, physical and mental health data, sexual life, i.e. sexual activities and sexual orientation, religious or philosophical beliefs, political opinions, and trade union membership. Almost certainly because France is in in the European Union, that last one. What is explicitly not on that list is criminal record, because criminal records are considered a whole class of their own. So they're actually addressed specifically. So there's plain old data, Special category data and criminal records. They're the three categories. Wow. That's a really, really interesting list. And I guess what happens to special category data is going to be my next question. Well, that's going to be, as we go through the rest of the conversation, you're going to see things like, you know, normally the fine is blah, blah, blah. But for special category data, you're supposed to do blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, for special category data, the standard is higher. So basically, wherever the law has a differentiation, that's the, that's how it's done. So special category data. Yeah, I, I was thinking more along the lines of uh, data that I voluntarily share publicly. I, my political opinion, for example, might be data that I would share publicly. I would tweet that. 
that's your choice, but it's still special category data when someone else is holding it. They still but, they but have to. That has different protections than personal data, correct? Nope. That has more protections than personal. Okay, special category data is a subset of personal data. It oh, it is, is extra personal data. Yes. Um, so everything GDPR covers is personal data because it can be tied to a human being. Huh. Right. Your your racial or ethnic origin is about you as a human being, so it's covered. But special category data is like a subset of all personal data that is considered extra I just, important. I just don't to see how you'd protect that if it just I'm means out you there have extra splatting it around. If you have a database that links people to their race, then you need to be extra careful about that database. If you have a database that contains people's medical records, you have to be extra careful about that database. That's all it means. If your database doesn't contain any of these, I'm not saying you can just do anything you like, but you don't have to do extra things. If your database contains one of these, you have to take extra precautions. That's all it says. So because I'm, you're not storing the data on one person, right? So would this disallow, um, let's say I'm, I'm Facebook and I've got someone who wants to advertise a hair product that is only mm-hmm. appropriate for African-American hair. Their right. hair no, is okay, different so from my hair. It doesn't disallow anything. So, it doesn't disallow anything. It puts extra onus on you to protect it. Can I fi- it doesn't stop finish? you storing it. It doesn't can stop I you finish? using it. It just my, can I ask my question? Okay. Okay. Sorry. So, uh, with that, it sounds like I would have to ask permission of each person. Can I share the fact that you're African American with this this company that's going to then advertise this product to you because you're African American? Yes and no. No, as in not that specific. Yes, you would have to have asked informed consent. But the informed consent can be, we will share the following with advertisers. Do you agree? Genetic data? <laughs> it will be an odd one, but there may be situations, right? Um, a service that does DNA sequencing, and they, they, they um, contract that out to a third party. Yeah. They would have in their disclosure to you, in their privacy notice, they would say... We send your data to blah company because they do blah thing to it. It's all they have to do. They just, and they would have to, like, they would have to be, if they lose it, they have to notify you. And it's also compulsory. you and you have the choice of saying, no, I don't want to share that with you. Correct. Absolutely. Yes. And that's also something we'll come to. You definitely have choices. So basically special category data is extra personal data. And it just comes with extra responsibilities. It's not extra restrictions, it's extra responsibilities. You, you can collect it just like you can collect anything else by all the same rules. But if you choose to collect this stuff, then you have extra responsibility to protect it. So it's okay. your choice. Do you, want, do you want to take on that extra responsibility by storing something we have told you is more precious? Right. That's what it comes down to. So, but so is the, there, are there protection requirements for things that are more precious? I'm still struggling with no, this. No, okay. We're going to see it mentioned, right? It's, it, it's basically, it comes down to stuff like mandatory reporting and stuff like that. So if you, can ta- if you have special access data, then you have to have a data protection officer. Other companies can have a data protection officer if they want, but they don't have to. Okay. Uh, if you have a data breach and it doesn't contain certain criteria, one of which is special category data, then you don't have to publicly announce. But as soon as your data breach contains special category data, you now mandatory. You now must. 
publicize your data breach. Now that's interesting. So regular old personal data like my a home phone number, my social or my my government ID, my uh that does if they lose that they don't have to uh, No, no. No, no. Uh, special category data is not the only criteria for mandatory announcing. It's one of the criteria for mandatory announcing. Other criteria include financial harm, uh, potential financial harm, potential loss of reputation. There's okay, a whole so, bunch of so I think that... you might want to reword what you said, because you said if it doesn't contain special category data, then you don't have to announce. And that's not what you meant to say. No, yeah, yeah, we're going out of order, and it's you're you're trying to make me go out of order on the special category data. Just it's extra special data; it comes with extra responsibilities, and we'll see it prop up as we talk through the rest of this stuff. We're going to see me saying things like, "And normally, blah 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 rules apply unless you have special category data, and then you have to do Z instead." Does that make sense? Okay, I just wish you'd said I, it I promise before you you're said see the statement up, right? that is now not true. That's that's what I'm I'm confused by. But okay. Let's let's okay, keep going. Well, okay, what? Okay, Let, I'll I'll we'll I'll, just I'll sally say forward. something I know is it's personal data that's extra special with extra protections. Okay, and we'll see it again. It'll be our friend again. The next definition is data processing. Again, that sounds like something you and I could make up. What is data processing? Well, the GDPR has an opinion on that, and the, its opinion is stupendously broad. So, data processing includes gathering data. Storing data, analyzing data, transporting or transmitting data, and disposing of data. All of those things are considered processing. That sounds good. The data subject, that is the fancy pants GDPR way of saying you. The person about which the data is. So it's personal data is about a living human being. That living human being has the terribly uh, depersonalizing name of data subject. You are the data subject. I am the data subject. Uh, The next word then is the data controller. This is an organization or person who makes decisions on why and how personal data should be stored or processed. So that's likely to be a school, a company, a government, a business person. They are data controllers because they make the decisions. They don't have to be the person who actually does it. They're the people who make the decision. So they're the data controller. Now, they may do the actual processing themselves, or they may, they may send it out to third parties. So the other word is data processor. And that's the person or organization who actually store or process the data on behalf of a data controller. And very often, the one company is both. So a university would be both. They were a data controller because they make decisions about what data they collect, and they actually do storing and all that kind of stuff as well. But third parties may be only processors, so they don't make any decisions. They're just told what to do, and they do it. You see the difference? Yes. I'm, I'm getting stuck often on person or organization uh, because it's, let's say, the engineering VP who says, we would like to start doing this with this data. So that would be a person... No. No, no, no. Person as in a lawyer who is self-employed, a doctor who is self-employed. It's, so it's only when they a, are a, a the one-person company. company. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Think of it as a one-person company. Huh. Whenever you see me say oh, person or organization, I'm, I'm saying that just because you're a sole trader doesn't mean the law doesn't apply to you. Okay. I'm not talking about people within organizations. Okay. All right. Good. 
The next definition then is a data protection officer, and they will be known very impersonally as the DPO from now on. It is a named person. So if company X has a data protection officer, that is a named position. So they can't just say, oh, yeah, we have one. They have to say, our data protection officer is Mr. So-and-so, right? It has to be a named person. And they are responsible for that organization's compliance with GDPR. Now, DPOs are mandatory for any organization whose core activities include large-scale systematic data monitoring or large-scale processing of special category data, there's our friend, or processing of criminal records. So if you meet one of those three requirements, then you must appoint a named data protection officer. So let's get down to that detail again of what a single person would be. That does not make sense for Google. There's not going to be one woman who's responsible yes, for that. Yes, there, there is. There Just like there's multiple. a CFO. No. Like there's a chief financial officer where the book stops. Think of the data protection officer as the chief data officer. Okay, but the, you've there got to have lots of, I mean, if you look, you've got a chief technology officer, but you've also got VPs of technology, you've got directors sure. of technology, you've got department managers of technology. Sure. You have lots of levels. They aren't one person ever. No, no. And under the law, the chief financial officer is the person with ultimate responsibility. They can delegate that down all they want, but under law, a chief financial officer has certain responsibilities. So th this didn't say chief, so it doesn't say it's a C-level position. Okay, I'm I'm, okay, that's because this is a European law. I am telling you, as a, to, to make it understandable, this is equivalent of a C position. So The law says that this person has is to be, where the book stops. So there has to be one person reporting to the CEO of the company? Does it say that? No, it says there is one person whom the organization appoints as being the one person with responsibility for this. So the, the organization gets to decide who this one named person is. So the, the, the law doesn't say how they decide or how their reporting structure is. The law just says that they are responsible. The, the organization must appoint a person with a name who is their data protection officer. So you could they, uh, just point at Sally, the, the janitor, and say she's your, our DPO. You could. Okay. And Sally would then have a lot of work to do. But she wouldn't <laughs> be personally liable. But she would have responsibilities. Okay. All right. And if she messes up, the company is liable. Mm -hmm. The company well, appointed her as their Why DPO. Why did they pick the janitor? This is silly. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Which, which is good, right? <laughs> the DPO isn't hung out to dry. Uh, so you have to appoint a DPO if you meet those, one of those three criteria. But the, they'd like every large organization to appoint a DPO and even small organizations to appoint a DPO. And the DPO doesn't have to work for you. So you could be a two-man operation and you might appoint someone as your DPO who's also the DPO for 50 other small companies. That's okay. Mm. So you can outsource the DPO role. Okay. Then we have the concept of a supervisory authority. This is a national data protection authority that, respond, that enforces GDPR. Every country in Europe is going to have a supervisory authority. In Ireland, it is the Office of the Data Protection Commissioner. In England, it will be some other office. Basically, every country gets to appoint their government office of GDPR, and they're called the supervisory authority. And what's their responsibility? They are responsible for... So all of these fines and things are appointed, are 
handed out by the supervisory authority of your country. So if you're in France and you're, if you're a French company that breaks GDPR, it's the French supervisory authority who slaps you on the wrist and sticks a fine on your head. If there's some sort of disagreement, let's say that I, decide, I, I feel that company X has broken my rights and I insist that someone decide whether or not their use of my data is legitimate. Who's the someone? It's the supervisory authority. So they have to adjudicate and say, well, actually, no, it's okay to do X, Y, or Z. Okay. So when we have all of these precedents I'm talking about, that's going to be the supervisory authority. Think yeah. of it as the Department of Data. <laughs> okay. Uh, or the Office of Homeland Data or whatever. You know, you know what I mean. It's a government office. One of them in every country inside Europe. Privacy notice is not an airy-fairy term. It's defined within the GDPR. A document data controllers... So the person who's making the decision or the organization making the decision has to create the privacy notice. So not the data processor, the data controller is responsible for the privacy notice. So a document data controllers are required to publish that describes what personal data they collect, why they collect it, what they're going to do with it, including who they're going to share it with. So every privacy notice Every data controller has to have a privacy notice and every privacy notice has to cover those points. Privacy notices also have to explicitly state the legal grounds on which the data is being collected. And I'm putting that in brackets. Legal grounds has a whole section all to itself. It's really important. Okay. So the privacy notice isn't something arbitrary. It's a document that has to contain certain information and it's required that all data controllers publish a privacy notice. Subject access request. A request from a data subject for a copy of all the personal data a data controller holds on them. In other words, that zip file you can now get from Facebook. That's officially a SAR. Hmm. Okay. A subject access request. Because remember, you and I are the data subjects. Data breach. Under the GDPR, the term data breach has a very broad definition. So it's not the obvious, it's not just the obvious stuff like unauthorized access or data loss. It also includes unauthorized disclosure. This is when something isn't stolen, but instead it's accidentally given away when it shouldn't have been. Unauthorized alteration, because remember, you have a right for the data to be accurate. So unauthorized alteration is, is actually a data breach. And unauthorized destruction is also a data breach. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Which is an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah, since they're required to destroy under certain circumstances. Yeah, but also, if you think about it, if you have, like, a credit rating agency and and they're not supposed to have destroyed it and they've just lost all of your credit history, that's a breach of... That is a data breach. Mm -hmm. They were supposed to be holding on to that and they've lost it. That is a data breach. It's just the opposite of the data breaches we're used to. Which right. They lose everything. All right, so let's get this out of the way because this is, I don't like legalese. So legal grounds. Oh, my formatting is going to get itself in a mess here. These are supposed to be a nice numbered list. I'll have to fix that for you before you publish. Okay. So there are six possible legal grounds under which data can be stored under the GDPR. And every piece of data has to fit into one of these pigeonholes. You can't Mm. have data unless you can pigeonhole it into one of these. And in your privacy statement, you have to say which pigeonhole you've chosen. So the obvious one and the one that the GDPR really hopes everyone just uses for everything is consent. If you get consent, you can pretty much do anything. 
right? Now, consent is it has to be informed consent and so on and so forth. <laughs> but if you if you've entered into an agreement that the company can do X, Y, or Z, well, then that's fine, and that's you know an open and closed case. That's easy. If you have consent, work away. Easy. The second that from here on in, they get less easy. So legitimate interest. The data collected. The data is collected and used in a way that would be reasonably expected. So, if you're a school and you store examination results, that is a legitimate interest of a school because schools have results. Right. If you're a doctor's office, it is a legitimate interest to have patient records because you're a doctor's office. So that's what legitimate interest basically covers the, you've gone to a hairdresser, of course we have scissors. <laughs> right, right. Uh, contractual obligations. The data is collected and used to fulfill a contract entered into two with the data subject. So yeah. if I go to company X and contract with them to provide me a service, and if they need the data to actually do what I have agreed with them that they will do, well, then that's covered because we have a contract. Okay, makes sense. Legal obligations. The data is collected in, and used in order to comply with a law. If the law says that banks have to collect certain information to protect against fraud and the banks collect that information, that is not a GDPR violation. The law said they had to collect it. They collected it. No problemo. So legal obligation is very straightforward again. Now, vital interest is where things get um, a little squishy. Huh? Interesting. Because it's... Collected and used data is of vital interest to the data subject. So if it's a matter of life and death that they keep this information on you, then they can keep this information on you. That is in your vital interest. Huh. Not in their vital interest, in yours. Not in their vital interest. It has to be in your vital interest, which is good. Hmm. And the bar is high on vital interest. You can't... The actual wording is basically... Like the actual wording in the document basically says something equivalent to life and death. Like vital interest is a really difficult defense. Well, it's not, but, I mean, it's it's uh, a matter of life and death whether my doctor has my blood type correct before they provide a service yeah. to me. So exactly. That, so I mean, I mean, it's good that it's there, but it's not something you're going to see used every day to justify doing facial recognition. <laughs> right, right. Right. It's okay. And then the last one is again wishy-washy public interests. The collection and use of the data is in the public interest. Oh, this I is more <laughs> applicable to journalism. Well, to be honest, this is here for journalism reasons. Mm. Uh, and you can use it to justify the archi archiving of data for scientific or historical research or the generation of statistics. So it's, Wait, or the it, generation it's limited, of but it's statistics. Broad. There's still caveats. And basically, if you claim the public interest and you do something that people are not happy with, expect to be having an argument with your, um, what do we call the authority, your um, supervisory authority. Right, right. right. And the same goes for, uh, for, for the, you know, the, the less obvious ones, legitimate interests, vital interests, public interests. Yeah, that's if they're one of those ones that's going to be adjudicated and there will be case history to point back to to say, this is like that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Whereas consent is easy, contractual obligations is easy, and legal obligations is easy. The law says I have to do this, I do this. You've agreed I do this, so I do this. And I've asked you and you've said okay. They're easy. The other ones are less easy. Right, right. Consent. This is vital in GDPR. It has to be freely given, specific, informed, and unambiguous 
either by a statement or by a clear affirmative action. So this means that data subjects can't be railroaded into giving consent. It has to be an actual choice. Silence. Pre-ticked check boxes. (laughs) Or inactivity. Wait, wait. Pre-checked tick boxes? The ones that want to store my, uh, my email address, you mean? They are. They have never been legal in Europe. Oh, sorry, they have not been legal in Europe for years, but no one's been enforcing the law. GDPR is very strong on this. If you pre-tick the checkbox, it is not consent. I didn't agree. You assumed I would. That does not count. I have to push the button. I have to check the checkbox. Oh, let's start making a list. Over the let's start making a list right now, Bart, of the sites for you to check on the next morning. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is This is going to get a lot of people... It, probably a slap on the wrist at first, but yeah, yeah. This, this is going to be a big change for people. So stuff like, by using this site, you agree. Oh. Out the window under GDPR. Mm. Sorry, no, that's not acceptable. Data subjects have to be able to withdraw consent at a later date. So if you're relying on consent as your reason for doing something, and the person says, yeah, sure, I agree, the person has a right to change their mind. Now, that doesn't cover stuff you're doing on the legal ground of contractual obligation because the contract may have rules for how you get out of the contract. That doesn't cover the legal obligation, but it does cover if the legal ground for storing it is consent, the person can remove their consent and then you have to remove the data. Hmm. Um, and not only do, we, do people have a right to remove consent, you have to tell them how. So at the point of getting their consent... You have to tell them how they can remove it later. You have to tell them, A, that they can, and B, how, if you're relying on consent. Consent can't be inferred. has to be proactive. has to be proactive. Requests for consent have to be clearly labeled and separated out. It has to be a separate, obvious, separate piece of the page. It can't be stuffed into the bottom of a paragraph on the edge of page 72. It has to be pulled out and clearly labeled and made prominent and visible and obvious. Mm. That is absolutely vital. Children also get extra protection. Parental consent is needed before digital services, which is basically social networks and the like, can process a child's personal data. And to quote the law, reasonable efforts have to be made to verify the consent of a child, of a parent for a child. Outside of digital services, data controllers have to assess whether or not a child has the competency to understand and consent on their own behalf. Huh. So maybe you're a magazine for kids and you need the child to agree to something about joining a fan club or something. You have to then ask, can an eight-year-old agree to this? And if you're and when you're writing your privacy notice and you're going to be having children use it, it has to be written in child friendly language because wow. otherwise the child can't possibly be informed. And you have to go through the process of saying, can a child agree that they'll receive a magazine every month? Yeah, they can. OK, but you have to go through that process. Do you get the feeling a whole lot of businesses just aren't going to start like it won't exist because of this? You know, where you will look at it and you go, hey, you know what we could. Oh, no. Yeah, that'd be hard. No, we probably shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, th- th- probably. Yeah. yeah. Uh, note that GDPR defines a child as anyone under 16, but there is um, there's a provision in the law that individual nation states can choose to redefine the age as low as 13. 
Hmm. So there are countries can choose that a fourteen year old is an adult. Hmm. But that so that is I'm sure that's in that's there for some reason. Someone got an asterisk put in. Someone negotiated that. Yeah. But in general, sixteen is the cutoff. Oh, because thirteen is for social networks here. Yeah, Copa. Is that what did that one? Copa did thirteen. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, okay. So next thing then is your rights. So I said this is about giving you rights. Okay, what are your rights? So this only covers your personal data, remember. So this doesn't cover every piece of information on the internet, just information about you, the human being. So you have the right to information. In other words, you have the right to be informed about what's going to happen to your personal data, i.e. the privacy notice that the data controllers have to publish. That's how your, your right to information is implemented by the privacy notice. You have a right to access People have a right to see all the personal data a data controller has stored on them. Hence, all those zip files coming out of everywhere. Rectification. This is the right to have the data controller fix broken data. Uh, And the law says they have to fix it without undue delay, is the wording in the law. (laughs) And definitely within one month. Oh, So basically, one one month is the outer limit, but without undue delay is is how they want you to do it. I was going to say that Uh, was a little squishy for me, but it's that's not squishy at all. That's really specific. It is. Hmm. And the other thing is, if you contract out to a third party data processor, then you, the data controller, have a responsibility to make sure that that change you've just been forced to make gets pushed out to all copies of the data that are being processed on your behalf. Right, so that you're in control of. So if you control the data and you hand that data over to five third parties, then you as the controller have to tell all five third parties that they have to fix it too. And again, you're a controller. Of course you do, but it's explicit. The right to erasure. Citizens have a right to request their personal data be deleted by a data controller, but it's not an absolute right. There are caveats because, again, we the legal grounds come in here. If it's a legal requirement the data be kept, well, then it doesn't matter what the person wants. <laughs> it's a legal requirement the data be kept. But in the abstract, they have a right to have the data erased unless there's a good reason not to. It's basically how it, how it works. Now, the company doesn't you, have to actually delete it, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> how many times you have the do you right, see that? Yeah. You have the right of objection. In other words, you have the right to object to certain uses of your personal data. And when that happens, the data controller has to stop processing your data unless there's a compelling reason not to. Uh, And data subjects can request that their data... uh, Sorry, you can... Basically, you can request that your data not be used for direct marketing. And there is no grounds for rejecting an objection to direct marketing. If you oh. say, I don't want direct marketing, there is no legal grounds for a company to say no. They have to uphold that objection. Oh, interesting. So back to my African-American hair products, I mm-hmm. can just say, nope. And there is no ground that they can refuse you. Interesting. Uh, there's also, you also have the right to restrict processing. So Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What if it's... Oh, never mind. Again, all of these rights, right. So like you have a right to life, but you can be executed. Like you have a right to free speech, but you can't yell fire in a cinema. All of these Mm -hmm. rights are counterweighted with each other. Sure. Uh, So the right to restrict processing, when there are are disputes, the data subject can demand that processing of their personal data be restricted until the dispute is resolved. So in other words, the data subject and the data controller disagree about whether or not a piece of data is accurate. Or the data subject challenges the legal grounds for processing. At that point, there's a pause put 
it's adjudicated and then off we go again or okay. not depending on what the outcome is and the last right you have is very interesting data portability when technically feasible so there are weasel words here and these are weasel words that are not unweaseled they say weaselly <laughs> but when technically feasible data subjects have the right to request their personal data be copied or moved to another data controlling a controller including to a competitor the idea mm-hmm. is that people shouldn't be needlessly locked in with suppliers hmm when that, these that rights smells are like some completely other objective doesn't it it doesn't sound like it it doesn't sound in concert with the original objectives of GDPR. It seems uh, that that sounds like an asterisk to me. Like some other uh, well, reason no, because, somebody wanted that. Well, no, because data portability, you can't really have the uh, the other rights if data like if they make up their own custom format and then say, "Here's your data in this weirdo custom format." They're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to use open standards and stuff. That's what data portability is about. So but, here's a zip what's file that with all of got stuff. to do with privacy? It's that's unrelated. That's I want to go to a competitor, right? But it's data protection, not privacy. Okay, so your but data, it's, it's still you protected. Wrote. I just can't move it. That that seems it well, just feels it smells different mm. to me. Okay, I, I can see the link, but I guess mm. I, I can, it's it's different but related. I guess is how mm. is how I'll compromise. <laughs> okay. When these rights are violated, any of those rights are violated, data subjects have a right to sue data controllers. Not data processors, data controllers. If you're the data controller, you're responsible for the data. Okay, uh, we're getting close to the end, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, where are we? Hmm. Uh, we're, we're 70% done? We are, okay, yeah, we are. Yeah, I was going to say, but definitely there's less of my scroll bar than there was before. So <laughs> privacy notices are actually really important, right? So I mentioned that they, they're, they're how you know what's being collected, why it's being collected, and how it's going to be used. And uh, the who it's going to be shared with is really important. So privacy notices, the law says they have to be easy to find, but it actually goes further. The law says they have to be highlighted for attention. Oh. So you absolutely cannot hide your privacy notice in the small print. It has to be highlighted for attention. Huh. This is a privacy notice. This is our privacy notice, etc. And the reason for this is because that's how your right to be informed is implemented, right? You have a right to be informed, but the privacy notice is the vehicle for doing that. Uh, it probably should go without saying, but the law takes no chances. The privacy notice has to be made available free of charge. <laughs> Because some weasel out there somewhere. <laughs> yep, would. So a privacy notice needs to meet the following criteria. Concise. It should contain all the information it needs to, but no more. You're not allowed to bamboozle people by just throwing the phone book at them. Hmm. Transparent and intelligible. It should be written in clear, plain language, not using legalese to try confuse people. You know what it should that's going to sub- cause? That's going to cause a whole change to legal education, right? Because they, yeah. they've been taught to write in a certain way, not intentionally yep. to make us not be able to read it, but you would think so, right? Huh. Yeah, and sometimes you have to wonder if there are some people who don't choose to do so for not so positive reason. I'm yeah. not saying everyone, but there are definitely people oh, who like we, to hide behind that. And deep down in our souls, we believe it's only 85% who do it on purpose to irritate us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, It has to be supplied in context. The privacy notice should be available when consent is given 
and or the personal data is actually collected. Or if the data is, a, is acquired indirectly, the data subject needs to be provided with the privacy notice within a reasonable time. So if you're going around hoovering up data somehow, maybe you're wandering up the street physically collecting something. I don't know how you would do this. But if you were collecting the data in some way that involves collecting it proactively, you then have to go back and tell everyone that you've collected it within a reasonable amount of time. But really, the much more simple case is at the point where you're saying, can I have your permission? That's the point your privacy notice has to be front and center. So privacy notices must contain contact details for the data controller's data protection officer, if they have one. Oh, wow. That's why it has to be a person. because Oh, but I mean, this is like somebody who reports to Steve Jobs or possibly a janitor, not Steve Jobs, sorry, Tim Cook, or possibly their janitor, but I get to see their (laughs) contact information. Yes, they have to make it very obvious. Otherwise, you can't can't contact them to protest, right? Exactly. Or to correct it. Or to correct it or have it erased. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. You have to specify the legal grounds which you're using from the list we talked about earlier. You have to list all the data processors that will process your personal data. So if oh, you're wow. farming out to 10 people, you've got to list all 10 people you're farming out to. The retention policy has to be listed. How long are you going to keep it? Hmm. An explanation of the person's rights regarding the processing of their personal data, including their right to withdraw consent to object to certain kinds of data processing and to complain to the regular, to relevant supervisory authority. In other words, you have to say, here's your rights and here's who you complain to if you think we've broken them. That has to be in every privacy notice. That's very customer-friendly, very user-friendly. Except that could be a giant 23-page statement now because of all that stuff they got to put in there, right? Well, no, none of that stuff is particularly long. I mean, they specifically say you just, right, so you don't give an essay about every data processor. You just say, here's our data processors. But I mean, how many do you think Google has? How many do you think Amazon has? And then, think um, about all well, okay, of, so of the I've, I've summarized a bit, right? But Amazon. they actually give guidance. They actually give guidance on this. So it should be, wherever possible, you should use collapsible parts of a page and stuff. Oh, so that the list wow. Of, so they actually go that far. So that basically you should be able to scan it all at a glance and expand out the bits you want or link to the bits you want. So they're very, very clear that it, that it has to be clear. And they, they give examples of ways you can make it clear. But This actually that sounds is a like big... some really smart people worked on it. That's a great... I know. <laughs> it kept happening to me as I was doing... I did a training course on, on this stuff recently and it, I kept on like looking at the slides going, but, but, but this is sensible. <laughs> How'd that happen? Um, so the other thing is that the, 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 noti- the notification of the person's rights has to be clearly separated from the rest of the notice so it's easy to find. So the bit that says, here's your rights, has to be clearly marked as, here's your rights. So then we have subject access requests. Since citizens have a right to access, data controllers have to provide a mechanism for the data subjects to submit so-called subject access requests, or SARs. Uh, there should not be a fee for a SAR. There are some exceptions, but in general, no fee. The data should be, re- if the data is returned electronically, so if you're handing it to them electronically, it has to be in a commonly used format. You don't get to make up some sort of in- unintelligible format. You've got to, you know, use something commonly used, otherwise off to the supervisory authority with you. So would this uh, you know, say so that if you had a, um, uh, I don't know if you guys have credit reporting agencies mm-hmm. uh, that you couldn't charge for to get that data? 
unless they unless there was a compelling reason from the church that is correct hmm. so they would have to make an argument that they have a legitimate reason and it would have to be agreed to that you'd have to be adjudicated on that okay and you are an exception you can charge because that's like, to, to me that's the worst part of the uh of the credit reporting agencies. They they find my data, they collect it, they sell it to people, and I have to pay to see it. What? Yeah, that would not fly in the GDPR. Yeah. That absolutely would not fly in the GDPR. Um, so then we have the concept of objection. So you have this right to object. So what can you object to? Well, the first thing is direct marketing you can object to and no one can refuse to stop it. Okay. That is an absolute right. You can object to your data being used for research and statistics, but it's it's not guaranteed your objection will be upheld. So basically a judgment has to be made to see if your right to object is outweighed by um, whatever the grounds are that it's being collected on. So if it's the public interest, then it's going to have to be adjudicated by the supervisory authority whether or not this actually is so important. So if you can imagine some sort of epidemiological data about the spread of flu, that's technically your health data. But protecting the country from flu is a valid public interest, so the chances are very high the supervisory authority would rule that, no, you can't stop people recording your case of flu or your case of, I don't know, winter vomiting bug or whatever <laughs> epidemic is doing the rounds, right? Okay. So you have the right to object, but it's not a guarantee you'll be granted okay. that right, if you get what I mean. Yeah. So again, we're balancing rights. Yeah. Uh, and processing on the grounds of legitimate interest, public interest, or the excess of official authority you can object to. But again, these have to be weighed and balanced. You know, whose rights outweighs whose. That makes sense. Uh, if a data controller decides to reject your objection, they have to tell you they've rejected it. And they have to tell you who to appeal to. <laughs> so they can't just get your objection, decide to, to oh, yeah, I reject that on such and such a ground. They have to tell you why they've rejected it and... Here are the contact details of the supervisory authority so that you can appeal if you want to. Again, very sensible. Yeah, yeah. Because half now, the this time is it's never getting the answer that's irritating, right? Exactly. Now, what really caught my eye is that there is actually, the, the law expressly comes up to profiling and automated decision-making. So in other words, the tyranny of algorithms is actually covered under this law. Tyranny Data of algorithms? Oh, you haven't heard this phrase yet. This is a new buzzword. Basically, we say that, oh, no, this can't possibly be biased because there's no humans doing it. It's algorithms. <laughs> but of course, if the algorithm is biased, then the outcome is just as bad, right? And it's a real problem. Right. Uh, type the, US, the word CEO into Google image search. You won't find any women on the first page. Ooh. It's an algorithm. That's the one I've heard. They may have fixed it since this came out, but that was the one everybody was, was pointing to. Well, a scarier one is parole boards. There, there's a trend to have parole boards making automated decisions based on algorithms. But if those algorithms are badly written, there are cases where they result in basically the algorithm being racist. So it's like there's no human being being racist, but the outcome is nonetheless highly discriminatory. And that's a problem. So anyway, the GDPR deals with the fact that this is an issue that's going to really hit us in the 21st century. So one of the things you can object to is... You can object to the outcome of any kind of, quote, automated decision-making algorithm or profiling. And they define profiling as any form of automated processing used to evaluate, analyze, or predict personal aspects of an individual. Hmm. So that's your Cambridge Analytica stuff just gone ding, ding, ding there. Trying object to predict to your political outcomes. affiliations. Yeah. So trying to predict whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. 
if GDPR applied in America, because political affili- mm-hmm. political affiliation is it's a special one category, of the special category data, right. even exactly. But it's, um, you're objecting to the outcome, not for the use yes. of the data, but for the answer that it gets. Yes. So if an algorithm says that you should be rejected from a loan, you have the right to object. And then they have to basically have a human reevaluate and see whether or not it's appropriate. Hmm. And you also have the right to ask for an explanation. Why was I rejected? And you can then challenge the outcome. Hmm. Uh, And the GDPR gives people the right not to be subject to a decision based solely on automated processing if it significantly affects them. So what that means is you, you have the right to ask for a human to review it, basically, is what that boils down to. You have the right to erasure, which is also known as the right to be forgotten. In many circumstances, a data subject has the right to demand that their personal data be deleted. This includes when the data is no longer required for the original purpose, consent is withdrawn, and the data doesn't need to be retained for legal reasons. The data is unlawfully processed. Mm-hmm. That seems like an obvious one. Um the data subject objects to the data processing and there is no legitimate overriding interest. In other words, I have objected, I have won the argument, you now have to delete my data. Ah, okay. There is a legal obligation to delete the data. Well, there's an open and closed one if ever I saw one. Yeah. Uh, the data relates to the offering of information services to a child. If it, basically, if it affects a child, your right to erasure is stronger. Uh, and there's some valid reasons for denying our deletion request, public interest, legal obligations, and the last one is very important, freedom of expression. Hmm. In other words, newspapers can not be forced to delete articles people don't like. It's kind of what that boils down to. That's basically there to, 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 to prevent newspapers from being forced to remove articles because they mention someone's name and address or whatever. Hmm. Okay. And children have a stronger right to deletion. And there's a very interesting little caveat on children. Uh, you're defined as a child based on the age. We already talked about the age. Uh, but it's the age you consent at. Oh. And then you remain a child forever. So if you consent at the age of 15, and then 10 years later you want your data deleted, Ooh. you are still considered a child because your consent was at the age of 15. So unless they make you reconsent as an adult to renew the contract... You are still a child. So if you've got a Facebook a profile where you were drinking at 16 or, you know, doing other, some mm-hmm. other, other type of malfeasance, you, uh, uh, when you're an adult, you could go back and say, I want everything deleted under this age or the whole profile yeah. or whatever. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So basically all the protections for a child stay with you for as long as the consent lasts that yeah. you gave as a child. So basically when you consent as a child, that consent is asterisk it has a you know a, a like a subsection whatever you know and it has conditions attached terms and conditions apply is what i'm trying to say so data security and security breaches so before the gdpr the responsibility rested with the data controllers and it was up to them to supervise the data processors under gdpr both controllers and processors are responsibility are responsible for the security of the data while it transfers between them If the data processor becomes aware of a data breach, they must inform the data controller Mm. without undue delay. Okay. And they also have a responsibility to report the breach to the supervisory authority. 
Mm. And the reason for that is so that nothing slips through the cracks. Okay. So if I'm processing data on behalf of you, I'd have to tell you and I have to tell the data protection office. Uh, yeah, okay. right. Data well, and the supervisory be... authority. That's the, isn't that the country yeah. one? Yes, that's what I mean. Sorry, yes, yeah, supervisory yeah. authorities. Okay. Yeah. Look, I'm paying data attention. Processor... <laughs> data processors can be sued by data subjects for damages caused by a breach of data they were processing. Hmm. Okay. So if a data processor mucks up and loses your stuff, you can go after them too. Okay. Mandatory reporting then. So people have a right to be informed. Well, that immediately has implications for reporting of breaches, right? If you have a right to be informed, well, that seems like there's going to be some sort of mandatory reporting. Uh, and indeed. So the GDPR defines something called a notifiable data breach, which basically means if it's notifiable, you have to report it. Um, all organizations involved in data processing have a duty to report any notifiable data breach to the supervisory authority, not just the data controllers. A breach is considered notifiable if it is likely to infringe the rights and freedoms of individuals. Mm. That includes... So that's the, that's the exact wording from the law. Likely yeah. to infringe the rights and freedoms of individuals. And that includes reputational damage, financial loss, and loss of confidentiality. So that's a notifiable breach. And a notifiable breach needs to be reported within 72 hours of the data controller becoming aware of it. So what does loss of confidentiality mean? So if you have given someone some information in confidence as something private and they have lost it, well, then there's a danger. So let's say a lawyer has a data breach. There's a danger of a loss of confidentiality there. Oh, okay. So then right. the lawyer w would have to report that to the delegate, to the uh, supervisory authority. Interesting. I, I'm scrolling through the list of breaches and trying to see which ones would have been applicable, but there's so many, it'll take me a little while to go through. Well, more. okay, the financial loss is going to cover almost all the breaches we've talked about on um, security. What do I mean, like Yahoo losing 12 billion Yahoo people really, more than there are the on OPM. the planet? <laughs> The OPM certainly. The OPM certainly there is, certainly comes in the loss of confidentiality. Financial loss then covers every credit card breach ever. Why wouldn't um, Yahoo be uh, loss of confidentiality? Maybe, or it could be financial what, what loss if your uh, email address was lost with the password which allowed people to get into your bank accounts, for example. Yeah, that that would be an arguable one. I'm not sure that would be uh, that would come under. Um, really? That would have so to be usernames and on. passwords don't don't smell like breaches. They'd have to let out. No, no, they don't smell like notifiable breaches. You can still sue right. over them, but they're not. They don't have this 72 hour ticking clock. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, for breaches where well, there's actually, a high let me risk let me state what I didn't say that you did answer. I just said usernames and passwords, but if that was true, a bank that was under, you had that already covered or yeah. your credit card numbers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for breaches where there's a high risk to individuals, there is also a responsibility on the data controller to inform the affected individuals, either directly or via a public announcement. So you can oh. either put it in the press or you can contact the actual affected people, your choice. But either way, if it's going to, if there's a risk of harm, you have to do that. And that's that's interesting that that's not just automatically part of the the original one, the notifiable. Because if there's reputational damage, financial loss, or loss of confidentiality, don't I have a right to know? 
Okay, but the notifiable is to the supervisory authority. That's what I That's mean. But I'm saying it would seem to me that would those things should also include the individual getting notified. But they would, wouldn't they? Because there's nothing on that list that isn't a risk to an individual. So I, okay. I think it's the notifiable ones are but like it's probably a subset. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. That's they're they're like the really really bad ones. They have to go all the way up to, to the supervisory authority, but they're always going to be covered by having to tell the person. Oh, okay. Okay. Like if it's bad enough that it has to go to the national authority, it also has to go to the person. I got you. Got you. Okay. I thought it was the other way but, around. Why yeah. would that be? But not everything that you have to tell the person has to go all the way up to the supervisory authority. Okay. All right. If you fail to report a notifiable breach, it's considered a serious offence, with fines of up to 10 million euros or 2% of global turnover, whichever is greater. And that's the bit that's always a kick in the stomach with GDPR. <laughs> it's not whichever is smaller, it's whichever is greater. Jeez. So, yeah, I know. A little company, 10 million, boom, you're done. Game over. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah. Uh, so that means if you don't notify about a serious breach and you're found to have basically failed to live up to your expectations, you can add all of these things up. So this is in addition to the other fines we've mentioned already. Mm. So that's 20 million or 4%. So now you're up to 30 million or 6%. And every individual can sue you as well. So what about the government themselves if they do one that's of these breaches? Ah, well, there's that. Oh, the, the, in theory, the government is just as liable as anyone else. So it's however, okay. <laughs> the Irish government are trying a unique trick. I don't know if they're going to get away with it. This is highly contentious and is absolutely going to end up in front of the courts, the European courts. The Irish government have decided to pass a law that says that while Irish government bodies are required to comply with the GDPR, they're immune from penalties. Uh, that's adorable. I don't think it's going to float. It's adorable, <laughs> and God, you know. Bless their cotton socks for having a go. <laughs> but I do not imagine that is going to stand the test of time, that one. But that is what they have tried to do here in Ireland. So, yeah, 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 the law applies. But no, 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 there's no penalties. <laughs> yeah, so no. individuals can still sue the government, but the government aren't liable to the, to the, to the flat fines. Hmm. I don't think they're going to get away with it. I really don't think they're going to get away with it. But that's what they've tried here, bless them. So that's... that's <laughs> There we go. Bless their cotton socks. Bless their cotton socks. And one one last important point for any Europeans listening here. If you are an employee in an organization that is subject to the GDPR and you discover a data breach, you need to immediately inform both your manager if you have one and your employer's DPO if they have one. Hmm. So every employee has a responsibility if they discover a data breach to inform their manager and the DPO. You can't rely on your manager informing the DPO. It's your responsibility to do both. So this tells me that the most important, uh, the best business to be in right now in all of Europe is to be teaching GDPR because you make a lot of money. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. The amount of, the amount of spam into my inbox offering me training courses on GDPR, (laughs) you would not believe. So I'm left with some questions. And like I say, I was on a training course, right? So that means, you know, I, I got one of these. So I do have some questions I have held mm-hmm. till the end. I remember okay, fire a, away. a while ago reading or hearing, it's all a blur now, something that I, I always found intriguing, and I wonder whether you heard anything about this. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I heard that if you say no to something they've asked you for, 
uh, sorry, I, I'm I'm a data subject. I'm I'm signing okay. up for this service. They want to use my camera on my phone, whatever it is. They're asking for some mm-hmm. bit of data, and I refuse that bit of data. That they're not allowed to then refuse me this service. Yes, there's something is, about that. That is, and that was covered under one of the principles, basically. When you're opting in, it has to be a genuine opt-in. It can't be you must do this or else. No, there's got to there's certainly got to be a uh, there's got to be exceptions to that. So if I say no, you can't use yes. my camera, but I want you to take pictures. That obviously, that can't work, right? I, I think you'd argue that's a um, that's probably a contractual obligation. Yeah, yeah, that would fit in there. But if yeah. I say I want to use uh, here's I want to use Instagram but I don't want mm-hmm. you to use my camera. Well, it is possible to use Instagram without a camera. You just aren't going to add any data to it, but you get to look at everybody else's. Yeah. So th- what that's covered under is freely given. So can, the regulation mm-hmm. says that for consent to be valid, it must be freely given, specific, informed, and unambiguous. And under freely given, they mean that it has to be an actual choice and you can't be railroaded into it. Yeah. So. So yeah, do yeah. you can I use your camera or not? That has to be an actual choice, yes or no. It can't just be yes and there is no no. Yeah, right, right. So my second question uh, came to mind when you were talking about at the university you would track down someone by an IP address and a MAC address and yes. find out who was doing something wrong. What yes. if they said I don't I don't agree to being tracked? In that way. Well, then you're into the whole legitimate interest and so forth. So okay. um, if you're going to study with us, you have you do have to accept certain policies about data that we will keep on you because we need to be able to actually provide you with an education. And that will include things like the fact that we, we need to be able to track certain things for security purposes and stuff like that. Right, right. So there will be legal grounds for that, but that will all have to be... So we're, one of the things we, one of the most horrible chores is figuring out what do we log? Mm. How long do we log it? Who can access those logs? Can they be deleted? How can they be deleted? Who's responsible for deleting them? Wow. And, yeah, and, so that's and, one part of GDPR compliance that we, that's great fun. The other part that's great fun is if we receive a SAR, how on earth do we gather up all the pieces. Yeah. And so the first step in all of that is to build a catalog of personal data. So you need to have a catalog of everywhere in the organization that stores personal data and what it is. And then it becomes possible to answer a SAR. Because then you know, ah, okay, so the student record system has some data, the virtual learning environment has some data, the library have some data in in their lending system. (laughs) Um, Our electronic purse has some data. But if you don't have that catalog, how could you ever answer a SAR? It's a good day to be somebody who understands databases. Yes, it is. (laughs) Actually, one of the interesting things, uh, so a a very popular open source e-learning system is called Moodle. Yeah. And literally one of the banner features, if you'll excuse the pun, which only other e-learning people will get, banner is a competitor to Moodle. One of the absolute banner features in Moodle 3.5 that's launching uh, at the end of May is built-in GDPR compliance. Oh, As in, wow. There is a button in Moodle 3.5 that a student can click on that says, I want all of my data. And there's APIs built in for every plugin 
to provide a way for that data to be collected and consolidated with a single zip file, which is then handed to the user. So that's all built in. So every assignment they've uploaded, every quiz they've answered, every forum post they've made, instead of it that having to be manually gathered together, Moodle 3.5 will just hoover it all together, put it in a zip file and hand it to the person. Self-service SAR. Interesting. Yeah, I was thinking about it. A company starting today, this would be, I mean, not easy to comply with, but a lot easier than retrofitting everything that you do. That's interesting. Yes. And one of the outcomes that everyone is hoping for is that in the future, every new system, like with security, people won't bolt it on afterwards. People will design their systems with privacy in mind and data protection in mind. And then these things are much, much easier if, if, if it's something you've just done from day one. Like, you know, this thing has to be quick, this thing has to be easy to use, and this thing has to have proper data protection. Oh, okay. Right, and, right. and uh, accessible, and these are things we just do up front now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a whole list of these things that a good modern project will do. And the hope is that GDPR will make people think about privacy and data protection, not when the project launches, but when it's been designed. Yeah, so my last question, my final overarching question is, Uh-oh. do companies hate this? Yes and no. Is my, my, so my experience is that opinions on GDPR are mixed. As in, everyone's like, oh God, this is so much work. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is this uncertainty, particularly while the law is still so new. Right. This uncertainty is scary. Now, like I, one of the people who has been extremely busy is our data protection commissioner. He has been going to every tech conference on the island of Ireland and giving speeches. Mm. Uh, I, I attended one of these. Um, there's, a, there's a national conference for all of the sysadmins in the universities around Ireland. And he spoke, what was it? I'm not sure whether it was him or, I can't remember the gender of the data protection commissioner, which is a good thing, I guess. The point being, the data protection commissioner, whether they were male or female, presented at our conference. Where this, all of is us the, this is the one, the single one for Ireland? Yes, this is Ireland's supervisory authority. It's called the Data Protection Commission. Okay. Wow. Um, very fancy title. Yeah. Um, and so the Data Protection Commissioner's office has been sending representatives to every conference they can. And to help educate the point everybody. they've been making is the way we are going to judge you is not based on whether you succeed in doing everything perfectly, but in whether you gave a God's honest try. Oh. If your processes are robust and some sort of human error happens, that's okay, right? Humans make mistakes. If you haven't done the process, if there's a breach and we come in and you haven't even tried to assemble a catalog, Mm. that's a big problem. You haven't even tried to write a valid data protection notice. That's a big problem. Whereas if you've put hours of work into it, not hours, (laughs) if you've put work into it and you can show us, you know, the last 50 drafts or whatever, and we find that actually it it fails in a technicality, we are not going to fine you. Mm -hmm. We are going to help you to become compliant. But you you have to have put in the effort. And if you've put in the effort, we will help you. If you if you just don't bother, give it the lip service. We'll down, you know the implication was we'll come down on you like a ton of bricks. That wasn't <laughs> that wasn't how it was said. They were way more diplomatic than that. <laughs> but they were very much stressing: if you give an honest try, we will help you. Hmm. If you don't, we won't. Oh, good for them. Well, that, I think that's a really good note to end on. This is but wow, Bart, you put a ton of work into putting this together. This was fantastic. 
like I say, it's it, it, I'm in IT and I'm in Europe. I needed to know this. So you were a fantastic <laughs> excuse for me to put all this together into an organized, sane and sensible format. What better way to teach uh, learn something than to teach it, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, look, that's that's podcasting is based on that principle, right? So uh, I don't know if you heard in the podcast uh, from last week that I have declared something called special pages. And yes, that's just I did, so. things that I think should be evergreen for some length of time. And I think last week definitely fit the category on, on DNS and this week on GDPR. I think this is another one that I'll, I'll double post. It'll be a regular blog Yay. post, but it'll also be a page. Because I think people are going to want to refer back to this to get the terminology and, and help them understand. So I think you probably helped a lot of people. Yeah, me, for example. <laughs> like now, the, 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 um, the, the glossary, for want of a better term, is something that I, yeah. I'm, that I have kept a copy of in Evernote. Yeah. And that I will, I no doubt, be referring back to many times. Now, I don't, uh, I don't promise you can find anything once you get to special pages, once there's a bunch of them. Because there's no organization in it once you get there. But at least there will be a link to where you can start looking for the good ones. Yeah, but if I do a search on podfeet.com for GDPR. Yeah, well, you want to find the blog post too. But uh, like I said, I want this to be something a little more evergreen. Hmm. Cool. I'm I'm proud I've managed to get two in a row. I'm (laughs) never going to be able to keep this up. (laughs) All right, Bert. Well, thank you so much for putting all this time in. That was really, really interesting. I loved it. Excellent. Well, until next time, I guess stay private and stay safe. I'm just making these up as I go along now. But anyway, do that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. This show is not supported by ads. It's supported by you. If you learn from the show or even if you're just merely entertained by the shows, please consider supporting the show. If you go to podfeet.com, there's a big red button in the top banner that says support the show. If you click it, that will reveal to you several ways to contribute. You can pledge a monthly amount using Patreon. You can use the Amazon affiliate link for your country. You can make a one-time donation using PayPal. Or you can record a listener review, which is an awesome way to contribute. You can always chat directly with me via Twitter at Podfeet or email me at allison at podfeet.com. You can join the conversation in Facebook by going to podfeet.com slash Facebook or on Google Plus at podfeet.com slash Google Plus. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.